have been teaching college English since about 1993. I've taught throughout the Midwest and for a good five, six years abroad in the Far East. My teaching theory, my teaching strategy is inquiry learning. Inquiry learning is like the scientific method. You start with a question, a research question, something you want to learn, and you explore, you discuss, you develop hypothesis, you look for what proves and disproves your hypothesis, and you keep your mind open. Now, the best and shortest explanation for inquiry learning, a good professor doesn't answer questions that no one asked, or a bad professor answers questions nobody asked, okay? I, I believe in generating knowledge in collaboration with my students. I don't like to lecture, which, I mean, I talk, I address the students, I try and get students to have discussions, but that's all kind of changed since we've moved everything from face-to-face -to, -face to online environments. A lot of my students believe college, the role of a college is to prepare you for a job. But one of the things we say, we talk about in conferences and in, in teaching theory is that, uh, well, 70% of the jobs that students are going to be doing in the next seven years don't exist yet. So as a teacher, as a professor, my job is to help develop skills, to help students develop skills and talents rather than a rote memorization of some sort of formula, which, which most people in my profession realize is kind of silly. But a, a tremendous number of people who don't teach English and think they could do it better think it's all just a series of facts and formulas. It's, it's not quite how it works. To my mind, the three most important things facing students that they need to start working on, they need to start learning and developing strategies for, are number one, copyright and intellectual property. This involves, in the past it's been like plagiarism, are you really doing your own work? But it also incorporates, and to a more meaningful extent, ownership and who has rights and access to what we create through reading, through writing, through the spoken word. Number two, resource management, being able to manage not just your money, but data, information, and, and, and our environment. Sustainability, I think, plays a big part and addresses this sort of question, which is one of the reasons I incorporate sustainability into my classes. And the third most important issue facing my students that they need to prepare for is uh, communicating identity. All right, who are you and how do you represent yourself in an online environment? Because we are going to be doing things more and more online, extended, and we've already had sort of a revolution in discovering that emoticons are necessary because sarcasm just doesn't work in certain online environments. But it, it's going to be a lot more complex than that in the future. This introductory podcast will talk about purpose and audience, what I'm going to be doing this podcast for, what my goals are. I will begin by reading a blog post where I talk about this and it's going to be more smoothly delivered and I wrote this about three weeks ago. And the second, and then I will, I will revisit this topic during a peregrination, sort of the peripatetic, I'll have to look up that word, school of thought. I, I will give you a, a ruminations on, on one of my hikes and I will see what people think of both forms of delivery. The first one, by the way, you can find the typed written, if you'd prefer to read this, at my blog post, Rabbit Andagraji, on Blogspot. First, reading from the blog. Motivations and purpose. I had a faculty support podcast back in the early 2000s, and I enjoyed it. And I have used recorded audio with my students ever since. The use hasn't been extensive, and I recognize my limitations, but a few be students benefit from it. The novelty excites me, and sometimes the thought of typing can't get me off social media. More importantly, 
The coming new online focus will ask for alternative teaching methods, and this is one way of addressing that. Also, with audio, a listener can multitask and find time for learning while exercising or doing chores around the house, which, which is something I do. I can record audio while hiking the Baker Wetlands near my home and find a silence better than I can find at my college or and that silence is almost non-existent in my home. The bird noises when I'm hiking seem more like a feature than a bug. Home has always been a challenging place for me to work, uninterrupted and without distraction. The Corona-19 lockdown has brought this challenge into startling relief. Audio production may alleviate this. This podcast will, one, replace the dialogic lecture experience of the classroom. I've tried not to lecture more than 10 minutes at the beginning of a face-to-face class. In that portion of class, I laid out goals and expectations, but more importantly, I tried to prime the pump of student interest by connecting ideas and issues to student lives and interests. My lectures are collaborative and controversial. Conversational. They're not really typically controversial. Well, they can be, but typically conversational. I don't want to give that up for an online class. Number two, this podcast will foster engagement and model communicative strategies of growth and learning. Three, this podcast will underscore the role of collaboration. Number four, this podcast will function as a teaching journal, which indirectly benefits students. It will be a searchable, shareable repository. It'll be more interactive than binders and books and blogs that I've used in the past. And blogs are a stigma. I mean, I will keep a lot of this material on a blog, but people don't like blogs. It's unfair, but that's the way it is. Hate the game, not the player. I need to learn things that podcasting can teach me, and I want to take more of the appropriate kind of risks. Trying new things can be scary, and but I've studied too many online models that force a face-to-face model into an online environment. You just can't shove a written lecture down and expect it to work. Likewise, I don't think watching a video of a lecture will work. I used to, I was a, I took my education seriously for a while in grad school. I got through my undergrad without taking it too seriously, but well, at least the first three years. But I recorded lectures, and I, I never listened to them because they were unspeakably boring. Videoing or recording isn't the answer, I don't think, at least not for me. I think some people do lecture well and, and they have an advantage. Okay, now my my thoughts for my hike. Purpose is to supplement or substitute for, to try and create in an online environment the kind of dialogue I worked on in, in face-to-face classes. As a teacher, there are some things I do not so well and there's a few things that I do quite well. And one of the things that I am the most proud of is the way that I would get community built in my classrooms. I would foster, I would, I would create an environment where students would have relationships. They'd meet each other. They'd talk to each other. I, I did a lot of icebreakers because, A, you can use those icebreakers for teaching writing skills. But, B, and equally, if not more important, you build group dynamics. And my method of teaching, my theory of education for teaching composition is conversational. There are some people who call it dialogic, which might be a better word, but I'm afraid it might make me sound a little too full of myself. But it's it's to have that dialogue. No, this is about creating a, a social environment, but nothing political. It's just about how do you get people to interact with each other. And by doing audio, I can have something a little bit more natural in a way. Now, there will be, in online environments, everything tends to be reduced to reading and writing, which is great if you're like me and you prefer to read and interact with people sometimes. But this may be a bit more of a challenge for students that are not strong readers or writers, which is a lot of my students, to be quite fair. I teach uh, 106, 
which is developmental class, class that you have to succeed in in order to enter Comp 1, gateway class for college-level students. It's, I want to create avenues using multiple forms of media to, to support students that are not as, as tuned into the reading and writing. Some people just prefer it. And it might also support people that are just, you know, there's finding ways to do two things at once. For me, I'm, I'm going to be doing this podcast while I'm exercising or washing dishes or, well, I don't know about washing dishes, but uh, if it doesn't make too much noise, it'll work. But things I can do that won't be too distracting to the listener. So heads up and disclaimer, if I'm breathing hard, it's because I'm going up a hill. I hope the end I'm, I am asthmatic. That's kind of the purpose. I want to support the learning about composition. Second thing to talk about today, audience. Who am I doing this podcast for? I'm doing it for my students. I do want to use it with my online classes, but also I'm doing it for anyone interested in the teaching of composition, and specifically composition using writing and coding and decoding the written word in English. I do think the skills of composition are transferable to and from audio to writing, from writing to music. I mean, you compose in music, you edit in music, you do these things in film as well. I'm focusing on writing. So i got to tell you, I enjoy working with audio. I enjoy experimenting with film. I, it's fresh, it's new, it's engaging that way. Uh, it makes me, it puts me on my back foot sometimes. I mean, I'm not in complete control when I'm doing something, but I, I think that's, that's okay. I think that that may present a certain amount of vulnerability that may, you know, showing students that I am also, I'm a learner, and that I also am not always in complete control. And that's okay. One of the things I discovered that I forgot was when I learn something new, it can be really difficult. Not that it's hard to understand, but being faced with unique experiences that learning something new will sometimes flat out piss me off. For example, Super Mario's Odyssey. I'm of an age where I had Pong when I was a child. I was 12 years old, I had Pong, and that was it. And then I didn't get any other video games. It didn't get cool until I was out of the house on my own, living in the back of a 67 Olds Cutlass 442. It was, yeah, I kept it running. I'd get rubber in four gears. But, uh, and in college, I, you know, I didn't have money. I didn't have time. So I, the, the whole video game thing is new to me. And I have read some research that there has been research showing that uh, it slows cognitive decline, that learning video games uses your brain in new ways. It postpones or delays onset of Alzheimer's, other neurological decay. Therefore, not all bad, these video games. And, but they piss me off. They're frustrating. And I think it's good for me to remember that when I'm not doing something I've done for decades and decades and decades and done and that I had a talent for to begin with, that I have a passion for, I suppose. I, I distrust that word passion, but... Uh, this is for you guys, it's not for me. It's probably the word I'll use, but it's, it's not the right word. That's one of the reasons I'm interested, another reason that personally I'm interested in, in doing audio and video. This is helping my classes. But my audience is going to be students, some of whom may not be the greatest readers and writers, but also my audience is a fellow faculty, or people who want to teach or are interested in teaching theory, because one of the things I do with my students, and one of the reasons I think I build pretty good relationships with my students, Really, my, my talents are not for building great relationships with my students. I think I do pretty well, but my talents are really for students building really great relationships with each other, putting people together. And sometimes that means, if you've ever seen The Dirty Dozen, I mean, Marvin kind of explains that, you know, they got to have an enemy. So sometimes, in order to build 
a real tight group dynamic, a real strong, you know, teamwork ethic. Sometimes they need someone to hate, and sometimes that's the leader. So I don't make friends with all of my students, but I'm there for them. You know, I care about them very much, and I do what I can for them. Love without anger isn't love at all. This, this podcast is going to, could also be a, a resource for people that are interested in andragogy. I don't like the word pedagogy, because that literally means leading children. Ped, pedophile. My students are not children. You can't talk to them like children. When I hear faculty point pedagogy, because the only ones in the college sitting who've ever taken an education class are usually ones that taught grade school or high school before they came to college. And pedagogy was the appropriate word they used when they took college classes back in the day. But we're dealing with adults, and adults are not children. Adults are different. Adults don't do things just because you say so. You have, they have to see the point. They have to see the payoff. They have to be included in the process. And so, and at least the way I teach, explaining my philosophy, my goals and objectives, and not hiding the, the, the carrot, not hiding the, the, the purpose of what we're doing, that's, that's fundamental. And so if you're interested in Andrew and Chief, the teaching of adults, I'm not necessarily the one that's got it all figured out, but at least I'll talk about it and you can learn from my mistakes. If you can't be anything else, you can be a bad example, and you can serve the world that way. So as a teacher, I may not be the, the, the one that knows the most about education or teaching theory, but I'll talk about it and let you know my goals and thinking. When I screw up, you can say, well, you can learn from it. I may not be a giant, but you can stand on my shoulders. So I've touched briefly on purpose and touched briefly on audience a little bit, maybe. Now I want to address method theory here a little bit. I'm moving from a hybrid environment where I would meet my students like a regular face-to-face class, but I would put everything online and I would put support material online and I have used some audio and video, but I'm going to a pure online environment now. I do want to maintain, I called it dialogic earlier, dialectic, the sort of dialogue. And when when I'm face-to-face, a lot of what I do is ask questions, make people think. I don't lecture so much. I don't tell people what the right answer is. I'll bring up points or stories. I'll try and prime the pump. I'll try and, you know, in that metaphor, if you may not work unless you've actually had to pump water out of an old well, but I'll try and give them a little bit of a a start, a little bit of momentum started to get them thinking and try and get them. And really my goal for when I feel I'm successful is when I get the students to do all the work. When I say I'm student-centered and I am a very student-centered teacher, that doesn't mean the student's always right. When I say student-centered, it means the student does all the work. The person do all the work. They don't want to do most of the learning. And one of the reasons I teach is because I keep learning myself. But if I'm the one doing all the learning, if I'm the one doing all the, the worrying about their grades, they're not learning. They're not getting as much out of it as I am. And to be student-centered, they need, students need to be getting the most out of it. So a big part of what I think I try to do is motivate and engage. And how am I going to do that where I don't have the chance to see them face-to-face and make jokes and ask questions? This might help, doing a little bit of talking. And I also want them to produce audio so that I can listen to it and engage with them. Because in a real, like in a pre-technology, or earlier forms of technology, before we had all the tech, the computers and stuff, we talked to each other. We had conversations. We went to the writing center and chatted with people. We had a buddy or a friend that we'd... We'd share our work, and we'd talk about our work with each other. And when we were doing that, we'd go off on tangents sometimes and explore other ideas. And, you know, it's not paint by numbers. It, 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 people, I think sometimes my students think that, that 
if you're not doing exactly what you're going to get graded for, you're, you're wasting time or you're... But the truth is, if you're learning, then nothing's wasted. But you have to saturate the research. You have to read... You don't just read one article and come up with your opinion based on one article because that's not research. That's doing a book report. And that's maybe middle school. I don't know. I think my son does more challenging work in middle school than that. But my, my students too often think, if I'm going to write this paper, how many sources do I need? Three? Okay, they get three and I'm done. No. No, if I were to say that, if I were to have want, if I were to want a paper with at least three sources, I would expect you to read a dozen. And when I say read, you don't have to read every word, but you glance, you skim, you scan, and you have at least three sources that are relevant. But you you consume, you read several of those in depth, and you reject, and maybe you read some in depth, and then maybe really great, you have to read the whole thing, but then you don't really use it in your paper. It, just because you don't use it in your paper, it's not wasted. The point is to learn. And you learn more than what you just put in your paper. You know what I'm saying? So it's just because you read something doesn't mean it has to go in the paper. Too many of us get into bad habits, and especially the smart and clever students, get into bad habits cherry-picking research and not really reading that much, not, not engaging with their, their question. And that's what I kind of want to see happen. I want students to become engaged with their questions, to have some investment in what they're learning. And that's why I use inquiry learning. It encourages students to connect what they're, what they're trying to learn with something they care about. And if you care about something, you, you read, you immerse yourself in it. You learn everything you can about it. You become an expert. And an expert doesn't mean just pick a couple quotes and then bullshit with confidence. It means you learn. You, of course, I didn't learn until I was grad school or later that the more educated and learned a person is, the less confident they are in asking a simple question. The thing is, sometimes questions that seem so so simple to people who don't know that much will be a lot more complex and you won't get a straight answer. This is relevant if you're on the internet too much. You may have heard of the Dunning-Kruger. People don't know very much about a subject are really the most confident to, to preach upon it. This is plenty long enough for my first podcast. I apologize if the digressions may have distracted you, but that's part of what conversations are, and I want this to be conversational. Sometimes conversations, dialogue, digresses. You may not learn the, the, the relevance until later, but the, you'll start to pick up themes once you start to really get to understand each other. But enough for today. that? Eve.